0: And tonight we're going to look at when the seventh trumpet sounds in Revelation 11. Again, as you uh, would study the book of Revelation, you see uh, the beginning speaks to a vision of about a vision of Jesus Christ that John had as he saw him on the Isle of Patmos. And then John receives little miniature messages for seven churches in Asia, and he records that. And then John is caught up in spirit into heaven, and he gets alternating visions of, of things that are happening in the future in heaven and in the future on earth, and it's kind of these alternating scenes in heaven and earth. And that's what composes the bulk of the book of Revelation, is these visions of John of things in the future. And most of these things in the middle of the book are happening in a seven-year time span. Um, as we, there's a series of judgments in the book of Revelation. There's seal judgments, there's trumpet judgments, and there's vial judgments, and they're all sevens. And there's some parenthetical chapters in between to show you what's happening during that time in the tribulation. But we're in this middle section. We did the seal judgments. We're in the seven trumpet judgments. We're on the seventh trumpet judgment. Next, later on, about three or four chapters later, we'll hear about the seal judgments. And again, this is happening... I believe these judgments are happening chronologically while other things are happening on earth that we'll read about uh, in the book. Um, I, I try not to go too fast. I try not to go too slow. I want you to remember what you're reading and get some understanding of what you're reading. So that's why we're basically taking it verse by verse, and I try to back up like what I'm doing tonight and give you a big picture review. Um, so let's look here at Revelation chapter 11, and we'll look at verses 14 to 15. Revelation 11, verses 14 to 15. It says, The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. Verse 15, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power, and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come in the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was open in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings, and an earthquake and great hail. How many of you heard of Queen Elizabeth? How many of you heard of Queen Elizabeth? She's been around a long time, huh? Didn't her husband just die? Her husband just I'm not making light of it, but she's been around a long time. Her husband just died. It's kind of neat watching some of the stuff. I mean, you know, watching some of the stuff that happens with the English royalty. I remember as a kid in 1980, 81, laying on the floor watching the wedding of Charles and uh, Diana. Long, 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 long train that she had uh, going down the aisle there, and uh, and then watching the William—is it William, the son that got married five, six, seven years ago? Watching that was pretty neat. Well, I read about when Queen Elizabeth, the the grandma of the William here that I just mentioned, um, about when she was coronated. Listen to this. This is what a man named John Phillips actually inserted in his commentary on revelation he's just using this as an example listen to this he said the lord is coming to receive no mere constitutional monarchy but an absolute untrammeled unhindered power heaven's ideal form of government for earth is a totalitarian monarchy with complete power vested in the person of the lord jesus okay the best kind of government is a totalitarian absolute monarchy as long as jesus is the king that works best All right, by contrast here, an unusual contrast. On June 2nd, 1952, Elizabeth II was crowned Queen of England in Westminster Abbey. The Archbishop of Canterbury presented her to the vast assemblage of people and asked, Do you take Elizabeth to be your true and lawful liege lord? From the assembled multitude rolled back a single word, "I." then she took the coronation oath, received a Bible, celebrated communion, and was seated on the coronation chair. She was anointed, clothed with a cloak of gold, given an orb, the ring, the scepter, the insignia of power, crowned with the glorious crown of St. Edward, ple- and pledged homage the homage of her people. The guns of London fired a salute, and the new monarch left the abbey in grand and colorful procession for a banquet of state. But from that day to this day, Queen Elizabeth II has never made a single decision affecting her government, affecting the government of her kingdom. The Prime Minister of England and all the members of the English Parliament do that. All she does is sign their decision into law. That is a constitutional monarchy, a monarchy in which the king... Is such only in name, king and queen, is such only in name and in all, and in which all the real power is actually in the hands of the people. That was the kind of kingdom the devil offered the Lord in the wilderness. And it is the kind of kingdom, the same kind of sovereignty that many professing believers offer to the Lord in their personal lives today. You want him to be Lord and sign off to their plans. Oh, you're beautiful, you're wonderful, you're you're my king. Sign off to this. This is what I want to do. That is not the kind of monarchy God intends us, intends Him, the Lord Jesus Christ, to have. He is going, and He is Lord of all, and it's going to be seen that He's Lord of all. Quote, Thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. This passage shows in the seventh trumpet about the reigning power of Jesus Christ. It's anticipated. It's highly anticipated. We're going to see some things, four things about when the seventh trumpet sounds. We're going to see it produces the third woe. It proclaims a great kingdom. It prompts great thanks, and it presents a unique scene in heaven. Okay, so here we have the seventh trumpet's going to blow. One of the themes you're going to see is about Jesus reigning, but the first thing we see when this trumpet blows, it's become, it's part of a third, number three, the third of three woes. Look at what it says there, verse fourteen. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. So whatever happens when this this uh, angel sounds this trumpet, whatever happens afterwards is. We're gonna see rejoicing with some, but it's also considered a woe. A woe means, oh no. Some people are gonna, this is gonna be terrible for some people. It's gonna be horrible for some people. Let me back up a little bit. If in the previous chapters, there was at the the there was seven trumpets, there was first, second, third, fourth. And then the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpet, before they were sounded, an angel says, whoa, whoa, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because the next three trumpets, I'm paraphrasing, are going to be horrible. And the fifth one was these demonic locusts that were let out on the earth. When that trumpet blew, that was a woe, That was terrible. Uh, people wanted to die, and they couldn't die when they were stung by these locusts. And then the sixth one was this 600 million man demonic or at least mutant type army of these horses that had the heads of a lion and breastplates of fire and, and their fire coming out of their mouth and, and brimstone and it was let out on the earth. That's the sixth woe. That's, oh yeah, I wouldn't want to be around that. And now it's the seventh woe. The seventh woe, woe, woe is right here. It's interesting because what we're going to read next seems like everybody most marks happiness. What's happening is in this next trumpet blowing, this woe, it's a forecast, it's a view forward, it's anticipating Jesus coming back and the reaction. you know when Jesus comes back, for some it's like, yes! When He comes back, not just the rapture, but on earth, it'd be like, yes! And for others it will be like, no, no, no! So much so that some are going are gonna to plot against Him and try to fight against the Son of God. So this trumpet that will give us a view, an a view of God's kingdom is actually a woe. Number two, what about this trumpet? When this trumpet blows, it proclaims and anticipates a great kingdom. Look at verse 15. It anticipates a great kingdom. The seventh angel sounded. Listen to this, verse 15. And there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdom's of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. So these great voices in heaven, what's a great voice in heaven sound like? Full, powerful, and there was several great voices saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Does that last phrase sound familiar to anybody? And he shall reign forever and ever. What does that sound like? Hallelujah chorus handles Messiah. I'm going to tell you about that in a little bit. That's exactly where he got that. He was so inspired by this. Um, Many Bible commentators say this is one of the most dynamic passages, exciting passages of Scripture. I hope I can do it some justice tonight. But what they're doing is when the seventh trumpet sounds, it doesn't mean that Jesus right now is in this, at this moment in the tribulation that He lands and He's setting up His kingdom. It's anticipating it. It's in view, and they're excited about it being in view. They're proclaiming God's kingdom. It's anticipated. Um, they see the finish line. Don't you like that when you kind of see the finish line? Hey, it's May. Is anybody done, who's done with school by the end of May? Honestly, anybody done with school? Yeah, all right. My kids, you'll be done with school, except one of you has to do math through the summer. Um, but you know, when you're in May, like, yes, I'm going to be done with school. I'm going to be done for at least two weeks, and I've got to start again, right? <laughs> you know, a lot of us are homeschoolers in here. But, you know, um, or maybe some of you have to do summer school, I don't know. But they're anticipating the finish line when they, in this trumpet blowing and these voices in heaven, say the kingdoms of our Lord are becoming, the, the kingdoms of this world to become the kings of our, kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. They're excited. Just as, do you remember the seven seals? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. The seventh seal, when it sounded, there was silence in heaven. Now there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven trumpets. And on the seventh trumpet, there's celebration in heaven. They're excited now. They're excited. They should be excited because things like Daniel 2.44 are happening. Notice, follow me to Daniel, the book of Daniel. This is what's happening. This is what they, I should say, this is what they see in view. In Daniel 2.44, this is part of Daniel's vision when he was told of certain kingdoms that were going to rise and fall and rise and fall. And then he's told, Daniel's given a vision of a kingdom that's going to be unlike any other and it's going to break in pieces the other kingdoms before it. Daniel 2.44 It says, In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. It's speaking about the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ when He comes back, and His plan, His administration is going to stand. Go to chapter 7 of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, it says, Daniel said, And I saw in the night visions, and, behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought Him near before Him. And there was given Him dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people, nations and languages, should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. And it, if you read history, every kingdom has an end. <laughs> you know, They even say, you know, there's going to be a revived Roman Empire. I believe that according to Scripture, but it's going to end. I'm glad for the glory and the, uh, the accomplishments of America and everything. And I pray for spiritual revival. I pray we'd have a third great awakening. I, I don't think it's not... I think it's possible... But even if it happens, it's still going to end one day. Every kingdom's going to end. Because the only one that's going to last forever is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, let's pause for a second, okay? So we just looked in Revelation. Go back to Revelation. They're all excited. They said the kingdoms of this world, Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Think about this. They're all excited. The kingdoms of this world are going to be the Lord's now. In other words, he's going to take control. Now, wait a minute. What's happening right now? What's happening right now in the world? You know, if, I were to, if we were to follow and believe the Bible, which that's what we need to do, Satan is running the world. Now, part of me doesn't want to believe that, but I have to believe the Bible. Satan is running the world, and it's not like God said, oh, uh, oopsie, he grabbed it from me. I don't know what I'm going to do. He's letting them. He has the power to take back control, and he will, And he could if he wanted to any time. He's letting him do this while his gospel kingdom work is taking root. And he's an invisible spiritual kingdom he's building that's going to come up and then come back down. Invisible form. But he's letting Satan do that. But I want you to notice, I'll I'll reference a few scriptures. Um, In fact, I'll just read it if you want to follow me to Luke 4, 5, and 6. Remember when the Lord Jesus Christ was tempted. It's recorded in Luke 4 and Matthew 4. When the Lord Jesus Christ was tempted of the devil, again, Jesus is in his, as man, in a humble servant state, and Satan is in his, trying to wield his uh, leverage before Messiah here. And Satan says to the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, the devil taking him up into a high mountain. Showed Him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I don't know how He did that. Satan can do a lot of stuff. He can do a lot of stuff. Showed Jesus a vision of all the kingdoms in a moment of time. And the, listen to the words of the devil. Luke 4, verse 6. The devil said unto Him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that... What well, those kingdoms and those glory, is delivered unto me. And to whomsoever I will, I give it. Satan acknowledged that it was delivered to him to leverage and run and move and shake in the world's kingdoms. And he's telling Jesus, hey, you want to you wanna have all these? You can have them. Bow down and worship me. The point that I want you to see is Satan is running kingdoms of this world. What does it say in 2 Corinthians 4 or 5? The God of this world. The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them. You know what it says in Revelation thirteen two. When it talks about the Antichrist, he's called the beast. The Bible says the dragon, that's Satan, gave him his power and his seat and great authority. In other words, Satan has power, seat, and great authority, and he gives this mesmerizing, charismatic, earthly leader, the beast, the Antichrist, control one day. Satan has a lot of control. In the world's kingdoms, you know, John McCain used to kind of chuckle. I sometimes would hear him do interviews on um, talk radio. He'd be a guest for the local guys, the KTAR, and they'd interview him, and he's like, yeah, <laughs> well, just coming back from the city of Satan, ha, ha, ha. You know, and I was like, <laughs> you know, Washington, D.C. has got to be a target for demonic powers. They want to, they want to wield control there. My point is this, is that the Bible says Jesus is going to come and take control, take back all the kingdoms that Satan's trying to maneuver and work and have sway on in high places. When Jesus comes back, it's nothing to him. He's taken over. That's what, it, that's what the rejoicing is, the rejoicing. And they're, 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 they're proclaiming this great kingdom. You know... Um, even though it's not taking place at this very exact time frame in the book of Revelation, they can see it. Have you ever seen, some of us follow the politics. you ever follow, you know, in a campaign, you know, it's like election night, and you're like, you know, the vote's coming in, and it's 1130 at night on Tuesday night in November. And finally, let's just say a governor, you know. The governor finally realizes all the ca- ballots have been counted, and this amount of, uh, Precincts have been reported, and the, the math and the calculations show that statistically he's got it. He's won, you know. He gets to go another term, and that other person not a chance. What happens? You know, they rejoice. Now let me let me let me re-say it in a different way. How about with a, let's say it's a new governor. And um, that's gonna, in fact, I think our current governor is probably his last term. When the two people run for governor in the next election here in Arizona, they will probably be one of them that'll see, I got it. I got it by Tuesday night. And they'll be like, yes. And you go to the, we're going to go to a reporter over here at the Biltmore, the campaign headquarters or whatever. And there's everybody's all, yay, yay. Okay. And they're all happy and excited and everything and, and uh, whatever. And, and they're all excited as if they're in power, but they're not in power yet. Right? They're seeing it's going to come when he's inaugurated officially in G- January, but they act like yeah, it's, we got it. You know, finally we can have justice around here. You know, Democrats say that all the time. We need to have some justice around here. You know, and so um, I hope it's not that happened. But anyways, uh, they get excited as if they're as if they're reigning, as if they they got power. They don't, but they, they, it's it's like it's just around the corner. That's what's happening here. But it's not Democrat. It's Jesus. That's what's happening here. They're excited. It's it's yes, yes, he's 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 uh the all those kingdoms, yeah. We see him willed in power and they think they're this and that. But <laughs> Jesus is coming and he's gonna reign and and there's so there's this proclaiming a great kingdom. Number three, two more points. It prompts great thanksgiving. So now we see a scene of these 24 elders. I believe they represent the church, the four and twenty elders, verse 16, 17, and 18. We'll try to walk through this swiftly. We see them proclaiming thanks. When they hear this, what do they do? Uh, they give thanks. Verse um, uh, verse 16 it says, The four and twenty elders would sat before God on their seats, fell upon their faces and worship God. And they're going to give thanks. So this is Thanksgiving is prompt and there's this excitement and there's this adoration. And I want you to notice some of their points of thanksgiving. They're, they're thankful enough to fall on their face. They're thankful enough to fall on their face. Look again. Who are they? Elders. They're important. They have crowns. They have seats. They're right close to the throne room. And this is a dignified spot here. They're not too dignified to fall on their face. They fall on their face. They're so thankful. Yes, finally. He's coming. Thank you. We give you thanks, Lord. And they, give, and they usher out this thanksgiving, these uh, words of praise and gratitude that we're going to look at. But they, it's enough. They're thankful enough to fall on their face. They're thankful, notice verse 17, the first part. They're thankful for God's constancy, His constancy. Notice how He's described in these three terms, verse, um, more than three terms, really. Uh, But look at verse 17. He says, we give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty. And now notice the next three terms. Which art, that means you, you are. You're there right now. Which, and what does it say? Wust, that means you have been. You weren't asleep in the past. And what's the next phrase? And art to come. We are thankful, God, that you've always been there. You're there now. You'll always be there in the future. We are thankful that you've always been there. And you are there. And you'll always, there's always a future with you. We are to come. We give you thanks. They're thankful for God's constancy. Art to come, Some of the, on a little side note, some of the newer versions, I don't know why sometimes they do this. They leave out that phrase, art to come, and art to come. He is to come. God always has something to come in the future. Wherever God's there. <laughs> He's already in your tomorrow. There's a song we've sung before. They're thankful for His constancy. Look at the rest of verse 17. They're thankful that He... They can see that He is reigning and has reigned. Look what it says. Because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. It is viewed and it's seen that they are thankful for God, that He's come and He's reigned. That's what's in view here. They're thankful that He will settle injustice and reward saints. Look at verse 18. They're thankful that He will settle the injustices and reward saints. Look at verse 18. The nations were angry. And thy wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged. The time of the dead that they should be judged. And thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. So, you know, think about this. We are going to be thankful... Um, There's a lot of injustices. We've said this before. There's a lot of unjust things right now if you start staring around at life long enough. There's a lot of unjust things that local governments don't catch, federal government doesn't catch, and God's not done anything about it yet, but He will. And we'll be thankful when He does because His justice is perfect. His vengeance is perfect. We'll be thankful. These elders show their gratitude. God, we're thankful. Those people that did that wrong thing that are destroying the earth that are mistreating people they're going to be judged we're thankful that's what they're thankful for and reward they're thankful that god's going to reward look what it says and now and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants the prophets and to the saints now i, I think probably what this is referring to is there's a, there's a couple of different rewarding judgments. I think we're going to already have been rewarded when this stuff happens. The church at the Bema seat, during, during this seven-year tribulation time, I'm not going to run over all the scriptures, but I believe while we're in heaven with God, that'll be the time of the judgment seat of Christ. That's when He's rewarding us as individuals, believers. When He comes down to the earth, then there's these other judgments of tribulation saints. And and I think that's what's talking. They're happy about this that he's giving reward. And then notice the verse. This is interesting. Again, we read it. Verse eighteen: Should us destroy them which destroy the earth? You know, it's an interesting phrase. There, it's almost like, ah, oh, is God an environmentalist? He's upset at people that are not recycling here. What's? It's a reference. It's not a reference to people who. Don't recycle, but people who don't repent, people that are plundering things of humanity, corrupting the earth. God's going to take care of that. He's going to He's going to He's going to destroy them which destroy the earth. So these 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 uh, <laughs> when Jesus comes back. The elders are happy, yes, he's he's settling in, he's he's making the wrongs right and punishing the unjust and rewarding the unrewarded saints of his, and and they're happy about it. They're happy about it. And then last of all, it's interesting, we won't spend a lot of time on it, but this is an interesting verse, perhaps more could be said than what I could say tonight about it, verse 19... And then he sees this vision in heaven. Look at verse 19. And the temple of God was opened in heaven. Well, let's pause a second. What we're going to see is this, we, it, what's presented is a unique scene in heaven. Now, wait a minute. The first verse of this chapter, look at the first verse, verse 11. It was given unto me a reed like unto a rod. The angel stood and saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court, which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it's given unto the Gentiles and unto the holy city, and they shall tread it under foot forty and two months. So here we see at the first part of the chapter a temple on earth, now at the last part there's a temple in heaven, some kind of inner sanctum in heaven. Now, I don't know how long this thing lasts, because later on in the book of Revelation it says there's no temple there, the Lord's the temple. But remember something. What was Moses told when he went up into the mount about the temple or about the tabernacle and stuff? What was Moses told? He, was, he had given the dimensions of this tabernacle. You know what he was told? See that you write down everything according to the pattern you saw in the mountain. There's an original pattern in heaven, and God let... Moses sees something that he already had, some sort of temple in heaven. This is said to Moses, write down what you write it down according to that pattern you saw. And Moses did that, and it's so their earthly tabernacle and temple is to be is basically a representing an heavenly one. Hebrews 8 and 9, I believe, speak about this. Figures of the true, figures of you know, the holy of holies and the holy place and the 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 ark and the the sprinkling of blood are figures of the true in true temple in heaven. Um, I don't know how, I, I believe this, and not everybody may believe this, but I somehow, I believe Jesus' blood was sprinkled there in heaven. According to what, there's a language there that really seems to indicate that in Hebrews 9, that, Sprinkled now in the presence of, you know, it was presented in the presence of God. Um, I, 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 the reference slips me, it was Hebrews 8 or 9. So, so, there, so John's like, oh, the temple of God's open. He sees the ark and the testimony. And, and what, what you see is kind of a Jewish scene here. The ark, the temple, the lightnings and voices and thunderings, a great earthquake and great hail. It's kind of like, man, that's kind of and that's kind of stuff that happened at Mount Sinai? And, and the temple itself is a Jewish thing. So what is happening here is probably, again, it's a forward look. This is the best way I can interpret this: um, is that probably towards the end of the tribulation, right before Jesus comes, or or as he's coming, pardon me, right before Jesus comes, the Jews somehow see a vision of God's temple in heaven. That's just how some are taking it, and I'm not. And this is what I'm taking it, and they believe. They say, "Yeah, that's what Moses was told to build." And they believe, and this is perhaps part of of them believing on Jesus and joining the new covenant, according to Jeremiah 20, 31, 31, and Hebrews 8, 7 to 13. You see, the Jews are in the old covenant. When Jesus came, He established a new covenant, and He's trying to get them on board. This is a new covenant. You see, I fulfilled the old covenant when I died and my blood was sprinkled in heaven and I satisfied the wrath of God for you. And then one day they'll believe in Him and they'll enjoy that New Testament that we are already in. So this is the s- trumpet sounds. You're like, Pastor, this is kind of weird stuff. The trumpet sounds, for some it's a woe. Wow, that's sad. For others, there's there's a great announcement. The kingdom's coming. That's what they foresee. And the and the, the um. elders give thanks. And there's a scene in heaven. But what I want you to, I'm going to read kind of the, a little incident here, there's another pastor that wrote this. I'm going to read this incident to you about Handel, George Frederick Handel, in him writing his great piece, the Messiah. I've kn- how many of you heard the whole thing? Isn't it like over two hours long? Isn't it like over two hours Mom heard it? Anybody else? Heard the whole. I'm not talking about hallelujah. That's like four minutes. I think the hallelujah part's four. That's just the chorus part. That thing's long. I was like, I think I'll listen to it today. I'm like, two hours? I don't have time. And I put it in my ear while I'm driving or something on my way to Flagstaff next time. I would like to listen to the whole thing. I really would. There was millions of views on this one. but um, Well, let me read this to you. And I, I didn't write this. There was another pastor named Steve da- Stephen Davey, pastors of Baptist Church in North Carolina. He wrote this and he did research. and Listen, this is pretty neat. He said, uh, George Handel... Um, Had In the context of him writing this, he had only recently suffered a stroke, which had paralyzed the left side of his face, causing intense pain. Most days, Handel could barely afford rent and food. His health had been broken, and he was discouraged and anxious about the future. Then one night, he was given a folder filled with… Listen to this. He was given a folder filled with verses of Scripture from a friend who was attempting to encourage him. His friend was merely trying to encourage him to take the verses of Scripture and use them to compose some new work. The verses were simply referring to prophecies about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And again, verse 15 was in there. George looked them over, and then tossed them aside as he crawled into bed. But he couldn't sleep. He got up, he went to his piano, and began to write. He was left-handed, and because of his recent stroke, his notes and script were poorly written, but he carried on. For three weeks, he hardly stopped to eat or sleep, or to entertain visitors. Finally, after 22 days of solitude, His friend made it inside, made it back inside of his apartment, Handel's apartment, and found the composer at his piano with sheets of music strewn everywhere. George looked at his friend with tears streaming down his face. He said to his friend, I do believe I have seen all of heaven before me and the greatness of God himself. God just gave him this thing through Scripture, inspired by Scripture about Christ's coming. This monumental work. Twenty-two days in solitude. Wow! And then another side note: in 1741, I didn't know the history of this. Don't they? Do you ever notice they stand at the hollow, at the chorus part? Did you know there's a history? Everybody stands at the hallelujah when they get to this chorus part. I guess this is how it started. In 1741, when Messiah was first performed in London. As they arrived at the hallelujah chorus, England's King George removed his crown and stood up. In their culture, no one ever sat in the presence of a superior. So he was, that's right. The king stood in the presence of a superior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus the tradition of standing at the hallelujah chorus began. Isn't that neat? It just makes me think of the, again, they're anticipating in that song. That's just basically what this passage is. They're anticipating the whole Hallelujah chorus and uh, Handel's Messiah is anticipating. Of course, it talks about His birth. Anticipating the great reign He's going to have. Isn't that, by the way, isn't that neat? That one of the greatest works in the whole world, in the whole world, in the last, whatever, 100-something years, 200 years, is one about Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? You know one of the most universal words is? Hallelujah. Isn't that amazing? It's about Christ. And uh, we need to live right now as if He's king and He's reigning in our life and let that be seen. So let's pray together.